You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, as a church, we have talked about what we call sexual fidelity before. Uh, We've talked about gender uh, and sexuality. Uh, One of the rhythms of grace, these nine rhythms that are regularly part of the Christian life, is one that we call bodily consecration, uh, which includes the way that we steward our sexuality and our sexual lives. Uh, But though we've never done this in January's past, I think it's increasingly important for us to see sexuality also through the lenses of mercy and justice. Uh, in, In this moment, and I don't know that I would have to convince any of you of this, but in this moment, confusion and sexual brokenness and sexual sin are everywhere in our society. Uh, There is such a deep need in our world right now for mercy and grace from God. And there are all kinds of sexual injustices, both overt and, and more subtle, that are being committed against image bearers of God. There are people who in every day, every hour of every day, are being robbed of the good design of God. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. If you want to make your way there in your Bible, if you're using the black hardcover Bible, not page 987 is where you'll find today's text. And in this, in in one of the Apostle Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica, he is addressing what he calls sexual immorality. Uh, In in the original language, in the the Greek language, that's the word porneia, which is a, a really broad term that means any kind of sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. When we, when we look at the, the, the whole of Scripture's teaching, we zoom out and look at all of it, sexual immorality is any kind of sexual activity that is inconsistent with God's design and God's commands. So the flip side of sexual immorality is what we might call sexual fidelity. We might also call it sexual integrity or or sexual faithfulness. In other words, what does it look like to live faithfully in light of God's design for sexuality and gender? Sexual fidelity would then include both a healthy, loving sexual relationship for a married couple, as well as restraint, as well as things like celibacy for someone who is not married. This church in Thessalonica was a young church. Uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they had, had visited there on one of their missionary journeys, preached there for a few weeks. They saw some people come to faith, and then they very quickly and prematurely had to, to leave town. Some of their opponents started a riot there, and they had, to, they had to get out of town. So a few months later, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to, to check on how they're doing, how these young Christians are doing. Timothy does that, talks to the people there, catches back up with Paul, and gives him his report. This letter is... Paul's response to Timothy's report. And among the many things that that Paul writes here in this letter, he includes a call to honor and a call to holiness in the way that these Thessalonian Christians are living out their sexuality. He calls them to sexual fidelity. This was a a Greek, predominantly pagan culture. If, If Thessalonica was anything like Corinth, which we know more about, and it likely was a good bit like Corinth, That would mean Thessalonica was a very broken and confused and warped place sexually. Not exactly in the same way that that our culture might be, but certainly 
some similarities. And so the call to sexual fidelity for the Thessalonians would have been a difficult one. And we start this morning, we should start this morning by acknowledging that that God's design, God's sexual ethic is a high bar. It's a high bar, and it's one that we all in our own individual lives have failed to live up to. It's one that every single society that's ever walked on the face of the earth has failed to attain. And for people coming from a pagan background, there would have been a really strong pull to run back into some of the practices that they had no issue with in their their prior life. So the Thessalonians need a stronger reason not to do that. They they need Paul to make a true and a compelling case for sexual fidelity. So let's read what Paul wrote to them. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'll read verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers... Actually, the word there means brothers and sisters. So finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, help us even now in this moment to turn our hearts to you, to hear what you will speak. For as we know from your word, truly you speak peace to your people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul's case for sexual fidelity includes both a spiritual dimension and a social dimension. In other words, it has everything to do about our, with, our, with our relationship with God, and it has everything to do with our relationship with other people. So let's dive into those two things this morning, the, the spiritual dimension of sexual fidelity and then the social dimension of sexual fidelity. First, the spiritual. As Paul writes here, hopefully you heard a moment ago as I was reading it, our sexual expression or our sexual restraint has everything to do with our relationship with God. There is a way, verse 1, to live that is pleasing to God. There are, verse 2, instructions from Jesus about this part of our lives. There's God's will for our lives, verse 3. There's God's calling on his people, verse 7, which has the specific aim, the specific trajectory of holiness. There in verse 5, Paul writes that knowing God should make a difference in our conduct. That those who who know God will actually live differently than those who don't. God's existence means something for our sexuality. If it it doesn't, that would mean that we are, as he says in verse 8, disregarding God. It means we'd be living, at least in this aspect of our lives, as if God didn't exist or as if his existence was of no consequence to this massive part of, of our lives. 
All that to say, if God is the Lord of all, that means he is also the God of sex. He's also the God of sex. Sex is his idea. It's part of his good creation. It's, it's a gift that he gave that is meant to be celebrated and it's meant to be enjoyed in its proper context. Humanity's fall into sin corrupted that, just like it corrupted every other aspect of life. And since Genesis chapter 3, since that moment in the garden, there have been all kinds of ideas, all kinds of expressions of human sexuality that go against what what God made and gifted as good. If you keep reading in Genesis, past Genesis 3, even before you get out of the book of Genesis, it spirals in a hurry. It spirals in a hurry. Even before you get out of this book, there's polygamy, there's heterosexual rape, there's homosexual gang rape, there's prostitution, there's sex used manipulatively. This is just in the first book of the Bible. So two foundational truths have to live underneath all of our understanding of sex and sexuality. Two foundational truths. Number one, it is a good gift designed by God. And number two, it is easily and often corrupted by sin. It's a good gift designed by God, and it's easily and often corrupted by sin. Ever since the fall, then, that has presented humanity with the dilemma. What part is the intact good gift, and what part is the corruption of it? Where where does the good gift remain intact, and where where is the corruption of that gift? See, we have this proclivity as human beings to not only reject God, but also to take some of his good gifts and elevate them to an ultimate thing, to to elevate aspects of his creation above creator. We we at times would call this idolatry, devoting ourselves to something other than God. But we might also rightfully call that injustice. We might call that injustice. At its core, justice is giving someone what they are due. That's what justice means. So what does God do? He is due all of our devotion, all of our worship, all of our honor. And so our lives, including our our sexual expression or restraint, it's never a neutral, simply physical act. It is always an act of spiritual consequence. It is always an act of worship. And it's never a question of if we're worshiping something, it's just a matter of who or what we are worshiping in the way that we live our sexual lives. In his book, which is called God, You, and Sex, David White, but not the David White that's part of this church, there's another, there's another David White that's actually also married to a Jennifer, so it's a little bit crazy. But this David White says it this way, he says, we need to always keep in mind that sex, even at its best, is a signpost. It points to the giver of life, but will never be the source of lasting contentment, happiness, or life. It should lead to right worship, but never become an object of worship. And he says this, though physical, sex is a profoundly spiritual act that reveals the allegiance of your heart. Sex is a profoundly spiritual act that reveals the allegiance of your heart. So when we we think about sex and sexuality, we almost always run right to the rules, to, to to the do's and don'ts, to what's okay and what's not okay. And I wish I were just talking about you know, people outside the church that just ran right to the do's and don'ts, but I've overwhelmingly found this to be the case among people in the church too. We talk a lot about the what and tragically little about the why. We talk a lot maybe about the, the commands, 
but maybe not as much about the design, the intent, and even the heart of God that actually serves as the basis beneath any of those do's and don'ts, any of those commands. Sexual fidelity starts by asking, what is this God after? What does this God want for me? And Paul tells us, right here in verse 3, God's will, what does God want for you? He wants your sanctification. He wants to take all of the ways that sin corrupts and pollutes our sexuality and our expressions of it. And he wants to make you clean from that. He doesn't want to just minimize those effects on your life. He wants to clean you from them completely. He sees all the shame that sex and sexuality and improper expressions of it brings. He sees your brokenness. He knows the deep struggle and the confusion that sin has brought to all of his good world, but in particular to our sexuality. And God is not unmoved or neutral about that. He doesn't stand back and say, well, humanity serves you right. I gave you this good gift. You messed it up. You're on your own now. I hope it goes okay. He loves too much to leave us in that condition. And so he sets out to redeem. His will is your sanctification. He is all about making you clean. He is about restoring the holiness, restoring the honor that you are designed for, that you are meant to have and to experience as one of his image bearers. Friends, do you know this God? Do you know this God? Or is your conception of God something other than that? Do you know the God who wills your sanctification? Because if you don't, there's really no point in me trying to convince you to follow a Christian sexual ethic. If you do not see, if you cannot trust God's heart for you, you will never pursue sexual fidelity. It will never make sense. You can never back your way into that. Sexual fidelity begins by seeing that, that God is the author of good life. He is not the one who gets in the way of a good life. It, it begins by looking to him as the giver of gifts, truly, not, not a hindrance to your happiness. And Paul is saying here to the Thessalonian Christians, you do know this God. You do know this God. There are Gentiles in your city who don't. And it follows that, that they will indulge, they will be controlled by whatever passion, whatever lust they have in any given moment. But he's saying to those who have put their faith in Christ, there's actually a better way for you who know God and who know his heart for you. Live in light of that better way. Consider, consider the alternative to this. Because sex is profoundly spiritual, our expression our, and our restraint is always an act of worship. And if it is not worshiping this God, the God who wills your sanctification, that means it is devoted to some other God who has some other plan, some other agenda for your life. When we see the difference between our culture's sexual ethic and the sexual ethic prescribed in Scripture, underneath any of the rules, any of the do's and don'ts that exist, there are actually two diametrically opposed agendas for your life. Have you ever thought about it that way? Underneath the do's and don'ts and the different ethics, there are diametrically opposed agendas for your life. And society's charge against Christians and against the God we worship is hate and harm. You heard Jackie Hill Perry mention that a moment ago. The, the accusation, the charge is that we hate people by the narrowness of our views. 
And certainly, we need to acknowledge that Christians have often been fearful and angry and hateful in the ways that we have treated people about these topics. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but we have no excuse for that. No excuse for that. But in the ethic itself, in the differences between what the Bible calls sexual immorality and sexual fidelity, I think it's good and right for us to go ahead and raise the stakes. And I'm speaking to everybody here, but I am especially want to talk to you if you're a younger person who has grown up in what I would argue is an increasingly confusing and complicated sexual landscape. If you're like a millennial or younger than that, I especially want to talk to you, and I want you just to look at me for a moment. Someone does hate you, and someone loves you. Someone really does hate you in these conversations, and someone really does love you. And these different agendas and the God behind each one, someone is committed to your good and someone is actually committed to your destruction. One is your real ally and one is an enemy just pretending to be. And as is always the case, you are going to have to decide who is who. You're going to have to decide who is who. As you try to figure that out, I'm asking you not to start at the end point, not to start with the rules and the morals and the ethics. That's the outworking. That's the conclusion. The starting point is to recognize that there is an agenda and a God that exists underneath any sexual ethic. And that this God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who offers himself to you in Jesus, the one who gives his Holy Spirit to you, his agenda, his will, is your sanctification. Not minimizing the harm you experience in life, but cleansing you completely from sin and all of its effects. If that's the spiritual dimension, then second, let's talk about the social dimension of sexual fidelity. Social dimension. Look, look again at that phrase there in verse 6, 1 Thessalonians 4. Christians pursue sexual fidelity not only because of its statement about what we believe and who God is, but so that, quote, no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. See, our sexuality, no matter, no matter what you would hear to the contrary, our sexuality is not personal and private. It has a social dimension. And what we believe about sex, how we steward our sexuality, always affects other people. It can't not do that. And this is where seeing sexuality through the lenses of mercy and justice is especially important. If justice means giving someone what they are due as an image bearer of God, then there are multiple ways that we can commit sexual injustice. The the spiritual injustice of taking God off of his throne and devoting ourselves to, to some other lesser God in his place, that very quickly ripples outward into all kinds of social injustices that wound and victimize other people. What do these sexual injustices entail? How might we transgress and wrong others in these matters? Well, that can happen both directly and indirectly. Directly, it happens by our own sexual immorality, the things that we do that are against God's design and how we involve other people in that. Indirectly, it happens through how we then relate and interact with other people about their lives and their sexuality. So let's start just with with the direct, our, our own sexual immorality. Here's some specific ways that we wrong and transgress others, and it's not by any means a comprehensive list. But one, and maybe the most obvious, is abuse. Sexual abuse or rape. It is tragically common 
for people to experience sexual trauma in their young years in life. I don't know if you've read some of the stats, but it's something like one in four women and one in five men experience sexual trauma in their early years of life. And I'm sure I don't have to convince you of this, but the, the wounds that those give, the harm that that does to both body and soul is an injustice. It's an injustice to an image bearer of God. Pornography is another injustice and one that somehow eludes much of our broader cultural conversation about justice. I'm actually encouraged that in recent years, more people broadly in our culture are waking up to the injustice of it. Pornography entails all kinds of exploitation, including at times human trafficking. It reduces people to objects. And for those of us who have participated in it, it rewires our brains in a way that changes how we think about and how we pursue sexuality in other realms of life. So just one example, the fastest growing consumer of erectile dysfunction medication in the United States right now are men in their 20s and 30s. 20s and 30s. Why? Because their levels of pornography consumption and masturbation have affected their ability to become aroused with a real person. And so rather than a a problem that, that we face as we age, it's now men in their 20s and 30s at crazy high rates that need medication for erectile dysfunction. Pornography is an injustice against image bearers of God, as is sexual activity outside of a marriage. Uh, This one maybe is harder to see depending on our experiences of this, either ourselves or with people that we love. But often, and some of you know this well, sex outside of marriage is fraught with manipulation, using other people sexually. Rather than God's gift and his design of, of sex being a selfless expression of love, an act of giving, We treat other people a certain way to get something from them sexually. Or we give them something sexually in order to get something that we need from them emotionally or some other realm of life. Even at its best, even at its best, when you're participating in sex and sexual activity with someone that you're not married to, you are asking someone to give you this hugely substantial and important part of their lives without being willing to fully commit to them as a whole person. You are saying by your actions, I don't really want all of you. I just want that part of you and that from you, which is an injustice against another person. We also wrong and transgress one another with sex inside marriage. Marriage is not an automatic safeguard against dysfunction, against abuse, against neglect, against exploitation. We bring our sexual brokenness, we bring our sexual sin into marriage. And sexual injustice then would also include active participation in an LGBTQ lifestyle. Because these things are not part of God's design, to act on desires, to participate in LGBTQ lifestyles, is not only a personal wrong, it's not only something that an individual is doing wrong, it actually is an injustice against another image bearer of God. But what I hope you've heard me clearly say already this morning is that so are all of these other heterosexual expressions. You can commit injustice sexually in so many different specific ways. All sex has a social dimension. It it all involves other people. And so our immorality, whether it is directed towards someone of the opposite sex, someone of the same sex, or with just a complete disregard for sex altogether, anything that falls outside the design of God is actually an injustice against other image bearers. I think we need to see it that way. Some of these things, of course, might have very different consequences. Abuse, for example, creates far more trauma 
than a consensual sexual relationship. But my point here is, in a cultural moment where it seems like so many people are pro-justice, there is a ton of injustice that's not only being committed, but even being celebrated by certain subsets of our, of our society. Now, if those are some of the, the direct ways that we commit injustice, what are some indirect ways? What are some indirect ways? We, we also wrong and transgress other people through our interactions with them about their sexuality. And generally speaking, we wrong them in one of two ways. We either wrong them by rejection or we wrong them by blanket affirmation. So rejection is an injustice because it keeps people at a distance until their behavior meets some kind of standard. Thank God Jesus didn't treat us that way in the things that we have in our lives. Christians have far too often run away from sexually broken people and complicated topics like this. Or we've mocked people, or we've bullied people, or we've spoken uncarefully, harshly, even hatefully at times about certain kinds of sexual brokenness, completely neglecting and ignoring our own. God help us as the church for how we failed to respond to the AIDS crisis a few decades back. God help us for how we have often treated people living LGBTQ lifestyles. We As we care about sexual fidelity, we can't just be concerned with churches that have shifted their theology and become open and affirming. We also have to be concerned about churches that are not caring enough to pour themselves out to people in love and actually walk alongside people and invite people into life and into relationship with them. And look, some some people are going to leave Liberty Church because of what we understand Scripture to teach about sexuality and gender. And in almost 10 years of being a church now, Some people have left for that reason. But I pray, and I hope this is your prayer too, I pray the last thing that they would see, that someone would see as they turn to leave, is the tears in our eyes. I pray the last thing that they would see is the tears in our eyes. That they would see that it is not me and it is not us who hates them. It is not the God we serve that hates them. And if someone feels like, okay, you guys are hateful, you guys are harmful, I've got to leave, I pray that they would leave through our tears. And they would say, that is not our heart for you. That is not God's will for you. Church, watch the way you talk about sex and sexuality. Watch the way you joke. Watch the way you talk about this in your Bible study groups, the coffee hour, other social settings. People notice that. They notice that. And people who experience same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria will sense a mile away if you are a person and if this is a place where they'll be able to open up about that. If they would be willing to risk the vulnerability it takes to talk about something so near to their identity and so hard to talk about in Christian circles. We, all, we want all kinds of people at Liberty Church. We want all kinds of people encountering the living God and seeing that his heart, his will is our sanctification. We want to be the embodiment of that. And rejection of God's image bearers is an injustice. Now the other, and in many ways the opposite injustice, is blanket affirmation. Blanket affirmation. If sex is not personal and private, but ultimately spiritual and social, then you and I will not be able to affirm everything someone wants us to affirm about their sexuality. Blanket affirmation is not love. That has never been the definition of love. And until a couple decades ago, that would have been a nonsensical definition of love. And look, for for all the affirmation, for all the celebration our culture has been pursuing, 
it's actually not helping. Anxiety and depression and suicide rates are skyrocketing right now, especially among transgender people. Blanket affirmation has not stamped out injustice, it's just shifted its form. The injustice of maybe what was once much more marginalization and relational rejection has just pivoted to become the injustice of cementing people in their despair with no hope. That's the new injustice. In trying to make people happy, our culture is literally driving people to the grave. And again, this applies to people of all ages, but the injustices that we are committing as a society against young people, against younger generations, is horrifying. It's horrifying. Young people need to be given a foundation, not told to build one for themselves. If you were to take a five-year-old kid out into the state game lands of Pennsylvania, drop him in the middle of the woods and say, find your way home, would that not be considered neglect and abuse? Well, in some ways, that's exactly what we're doing with sexuality and gender. Good luck. We don't really know. We hope you find a way. We hope you make it. And Jesus has some very serious and terrifying words about this. He says in Luke chapter 17 that if we are a party to sin for a young person, if we cause a young one, a little one to sin, if we lead them ourselves into the wrong thing, or I would argue too, if we just abandon our post and neglect people and don't give them a foundation, that it would actually be better for a millstone this huge, heavy stone used for grinding grain. It would be better for one of those to be tied around our necks and for us to be drowned in the sea. Now you, that's a jarring statement from Jesus. And you might not like that side of Jesus unless you have experienced sexual injustice against yourself. Unless you were one of those young ones that was abused. Unless you were one of those young people who was led into that stuff then that picture starts to make a whole lot of sense and actually is hopeful for you and the things you've experienced. You see, verse 6, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. That's the definition of love. Love is simultaneously welcoming sinful and broken people and fighting against the things that corrupt and destroy them. Not blanket affirmation. That's love. Jesus is the avenger of sexual injustice. Just as he will one day wipe out all poverty and all racism, as he will one day do away with murder, as he will, he will also make an end to all forms of sexual immorality. Thanks be to God. All the ways that, that the curse of sin has warped and fractured sexuality, all the shame and the guilt and the brokenness that we feel, one day, one day that will be gone. And either by sanctification, by completely cleansing us from it, or by vengeance, on those who double down in their injustice, by sanctification or by vengeance, that will one day come to an end. Because you, like me, are a sexually broken person. Because you, like me, have committed at least some forms of sexual injustice, let us live humbly and repentantly. And whatever, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this, Whatever your past or your present, Jesus welcomes you. Jesus welcomes you. And God's heart, his plan, his agenda for your life is sanctification. It is to not minimize the harm you have experienced. It is to completely cleanse you from sin and shame and brokenness. Because that is God's heart for you. Abstain from things that our society might celebrate as good, but that God would say is actually the corruption of good. 
Don't entrench yourself in them. And don't lead other people or affirm other people in that. Sexual fidelity is about so much more than rules and ethics. It is about the true story of the world. It is about a God who loves his people, a God who is committed to the absolute best for his people. Someone really does love you, and you'll have to decide who. So I pray this morning you would see who at this table. That you would see who at this table. That greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends that Jesus offered up himself so that you and I might experience all of the freedom from that shame and guilt and corruption and pollution, so that we might experience all of the, the holiness and honor we are designed for as God's image bearers. So even now, in these next couple minutes, today and always, may we come to him. And may our pursuit of sexual fidelity be a witness to both God's good design and to Jesus' sanctifying love. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of your word. We bless you that you did not leave us to ourselves to find our own way through the confusion and complexity of this. We come this morning, and I pray for my friends, because I know in my own heart and where many in our hearts will be this morning is a reminder of past injustice, either this happened to us or that we've committed, shame, condemnation that comes back in, wondering what hope there is for us, wondering if we'll ever be free of the thing that we're constantly struggling with right now. I pray, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit's power, that you just would comfort people by the truth of your gospel, that you'd remind us that your will is our sanctification and being cleansed of that, that we would come recognizing the weight of our sin, but that we would see you came into this world exactly for us in that place, to pay that cost for us, that even as we sang earlier, that our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. So meet us now as we come to your table. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.